0: Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. We are here live in the studio. Eric Prima is here as well. And, uh, of course, you know that was the voice of uh, Johnny Mathis. And Johnny Mm -hmm. Mathis is coming to town on November 15th at the Muckleshoot Casino. We'll talk about that more. But the big news is that uh, Eric and I had an interview with John Johnny Mathis, oh, about three weeks ago. And we're going to play that interview today. And, Eric, I would just like you to tee it up. You did most of the interview and I think did a wonderful job.
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, and right back at you. It was it was just a pleasure, number one, to speak with him, uh, someone of his caliber, the amazing uh, uh, accolades that that are attached to his career. and And we also learned some things that you may not know about him. So I'm really excited for the audience to hear this interview that's coming up.
0: I just want to interrupt for just a moment. You're listening to a show that was originally broadcast on October 5th, 2022. My name again is Paul Casey, your host, and we're rebroadcasting shows through January 4th, but we'll be back with new shows beginning on Wednesday, January 11th. Now, if you've been listening to Voices of Experience for any length of time, or you just recently joined us, I am interested in what you enjoy about this show and perhaps what you want to hear. Now, generally, I'm experimenting around with different segments, but for the last several months or so, I insert a segment that I was recording in the 1990s. It's called Profiles of Experience. It's people that I interviewed then, governors, mayors, business leaders. What were their attitudes about Seattle and the state of Washington and the Northwest going forward? And I generally ask them, are they optimistic about the future? What do they think this area is going to be like in 20 years? So you get some very interesting answers there. So I'll continue to play those into 2023. I introduced a Voices of History segment. If you've been listening to that, what do you think? Do you enjoy it? I'd like to hear what you think. And then, of course, the timeless music classics. And uh, then I sprinkle in some comedy segments every now and then and also talk about entrepreneurship. One of the reasons I do that, we have an older demographic listening to this show, but did you know that the fastest growing segment of people starting their own business are people 60 years old and over? You heard that right. So I think there is some relevancy there. I have a website called Voices of Experience, and you can access that by inputting voicesofexperience.com and then you can take a self-employment quiz. There are 20 questions and the higher you score on that quiz, the higher your prospects for success. Now generally again I want to cover a diversity of subjects, current public affairs. I don't want to dwell too much on that because there's so much news out there, there's so much access. I want to take more of the long form view of things. I will comment here and there if I don't think the current chatter is covering my thoughts on a subject. If I can add something new, basically, to the uh, current affairs, I will do so. We also talk about travel, fitness, health, education, and again, as I just mentioned, entrepreneurship. So give us a call at 425-653-1166 and let us know what you think about the show right now or if there are subjects you would like us to cover. Again, that phone number is 425-653-1166. And now back with our interview with the amazing 86-year-old Johnny Mathis and still going very strong. Out there, and he was 86 years old, and uh, <laughs> he doesn't sound that way. No. And probably that's a lot because he's just out there doing what he loves to do, and that's So, Yeah, no. and
1: he's quite an athlete. And could have gone down that road as well, as you'll learn by listening to the interview. So definitely, uh, this show is just jam-packed with great stuff like that. But the interview is coming up uh, probably around the 15-minute mark in this show.
0: Yeah, so stay with us because we got a really good segment coming on before that. And uh, I've had uh, on this show before, one time before, many people probably remember the name Pat Cashman in town. He was the... Uh, one of the cast members and key cast members, if you ask me, of Almost Live. And uh, he's got a a podcast now going on, and it's called Peculiar Podcast. I got it out there, Pat. (laughs) Okay, we had a discussion this week. I had difficulty with that one, along with Lisa Foster. And uh, what I'd like to do is take a little bit of vignettes out of their great show and uh, just allow the audience to hear this uh, what Pat has to do in his show, along with Lisa. So let's play the one today. This is about song lyrics.
2: I couldn't understand many of the words of that Fogarty <laughs> was singing. And I kind of right. liked it. I thought, eh, I don't yeah. know what the words are, but it's cool. It's a cool yeah. sounding
3: song. And that was back in the day. Now you can just go online and find any lyric you wanted. But it was a right. real challenge back in those days to even try. We would record the song off of the radio with our little cassette right. thing. And we'd sit down and we'd play stop and write down the word we heard. And play stop and write it down. That's how we got lyrics back then to songs. And now it's just so easy to get the lyrics. And yeah. But it was hard back then. You didn't have any resource to find out what they were saying.
2: Yeah. You kids today have no idea what it was like for us to search for important lyrics to songs. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy. And I feel like a loving you. Love, you're such a sweet thing, good enough to eat thing. And that's just what I'm going to do. Do you have do you have any respect for people who loudly sing songs <laughs> with incorrect lyrics, and you know yes. they're incorrect?
3: Yes, I do. And
2: and because you have contempt for those people?
3: No, I do it all the time. I, I love it. <laughs> well, I told I you so. the story. I told you the story about uh, Prince, uh, the Little Red Corvette song, and this yeah. again was back because I well, didn't that come out in the early eighties or uh, nineteen
2: twenty three.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was 1923. It so the the you could there was no way to find lyrics back then. And I remember I was in a uh dance club. I'd go clubbing with my girlfriends in Marin County, and right. that song was very popular. <laughs> I didn't know what the name of the song was, much less what the lyrics were, but I did not hear little red corvette what i heard was pay the rent collect and i sang it at the top of my lungs and um somebody said to me once pay the rent collect you know that's not what that's not what they're saying and i went really because it sounds like that's what it sounds like to me and they just rolled their eyes and walked away so that's um there you go i own that one and yeah
2: my parents had a song, It's on an old 78 record. I don't know if you ever played any of those. I did. No. And I loved to listen to their music, even though it wasn't my music. I was intrigued by these old big band songs and,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the Sinatra and, and the like.
3: Yes, yeah.
2: There was a song called I'm in the mood for love.
3: I'm in the mood for love.
2: Simply
4: because you're near me
2: funny, but when you're near me I'm in the mood for love. And a friend of mine used to say and I was and I would try to sing it, you know, I'd go, I'm in the mood for love. Simply because my friend said, Now you're singing it wrong. It's I'm in the nude for love <laughs> i said are you sure <laughs> i'm positive okay and that's the way i sang <laughs> sing it i'm in the nude for love
3: well that doesn't even make sense that I sentence i'm in the nude around. for love that doesn't even make sense
2: well you know what am but, i gonna say
3: I'm yeah kid. but it works
2: i probably was only 36 or so i was very <laughs> naive yeah
0: Well, there you have it. I don't know how to follow up on that one. But uh, again, that's uh, Lisa Foster and Pat Cashman on lyrics. And I was trying to think of a song that I did that myself yeah. and, and kept saying, I can't think of one particular song, but I have many that I used to do that on. I I yeah. would really struggle to hear exactly what they're saying. Yeah. And I would think it would be something entirely different. And then some would say, no, this is what it is. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll think of one or two yeah. And I'll I'm with report you. that next week. But, yeah, it's it's like that. I mean, I went through a lot. That's why that resonated with me so much.
1: That was very funny and and very apropos, especially for anyone growing up in the 70s and 80s. You know, you didn't have that opportunity. Or just, 60s. Or 60s. 60s. Yeah, right.
0: there you go. <laughs> I see along those lines, I just see music on my TV. 70s, 80s, 90s music. Not even playing the 60s yeah. anymore. I have to really look more. But, anyway, I, I started, should say pre-internet. Pre-internet. Interrupt. Pre-internet
1: okay. is really what I mean because... The internet's ruined so much. I, I have made declarative statements all the time, where I, I do all the time, and then I go check the internet. And I'm completely wrong. So I mean, <laughs> I used to be right all the time. Yeah, oh,
0: that's scary now. My percentage
1: is way down now that you could check it out.
0: Right, I, I'm here. Well, that's great. So we are going to have uh, Pat and Lisa back in the future. I hope you enjoy the segment as much as we do. And, um, but if you want to listen to their podcast, which goes way back, all you need to do, I'd like to keep this simple rather than going patcashman Mm -hmm. forward slash. So here it is. I went through and I just Google Pat Cashman and then peculiar podcast that comes up and you'll be able to listen to all their shows. Peculiar podcast. Peculiar. Got it. Got it out three times. I'm not going to say it again. Uh, All right. Well, let's take a little break and get on with our interview with Johnny Mathis.
1: And welcome back to Voices of Experience. I'm back in studio. This is Eric. And of course, across from me is Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. Wonderful. We're both wonderful because we have on the line a spectacular guest. We're so happy to have Johnny Mathis with us. Yes.
0: I'm one of those people who you said we we're going to be doing an interview with Johnny Mathis, and I went off the rails, <laughs> and I was so thrilled that I could come in. Thank you for having me here, and uh, again, just so thrilled that uh, to be able to talk to Johnny Mathis.
1: Well, let's welcome Mr. Mathis. Mr. Mathis, welcome to the program.
0: Bless your heart. Thank you so much. <laughs>
1: We were, uh, we've been talking about your upcoming reason for being here. Uh, November 15th, you're going to be giving a concert out at the Muckleshoot Casino, correct? Yes. Tell us about it.
5: Well, I come from a large family. My dad and my mom, they have seven kids. From the time I was a young man, my dad sang, and I wanted to sing, and he suggested that I take voice lessons. So what I did is in, to pay for my voice lessons is I ran errands uh, for my uh, my voice teacher, a lady, a lovely lady, who had lots of students. So I I stayed and listened to her give lessons to her paying students. And then when she needed something, uh, you know, I would go to the store for her, or I would run an errand, or I'd do something... I'd sweep the floors or something to pay for my voice lessons. And that's how it all started. Amazing.
1: And that that was even before your touring. You've been touring and recording now for 66-plus years. Congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> Bless your heart. Thank you. That's amazing. And uh, now this has led up to the Voice of Romance tour, and that's part of the reason you're going to be out here in the Northwest. We're so happy to welcome you uh, November 15th.
5: Yeah, most of this... Music that I perform is in a sort of romantic uh, nature. Um, Not so much. It's kind of informative, I would say. Yeah, that's a good word.
1: Okay. Well, we have, of course, across from me, Paul Casey, and he did say when I mentioned we had a chance to talk with you, he says, "Oh, I'm in the studio. I'm coming." Yeah. So, Paul, you're a huge fan. I'm going to kick it over to
0: you. Well, thank you, Eric. Johnny Mathis, again, such a pleasure to talk to you. And I want to let you know that uh, the influence you had on myself in the 1960s, my father was just a huge fan. And every day, every evening, I'm listening to you. And I'm just uh, absorbing your music. And then it gets into your brain, into your ears, and you start hearing it uh, again. And you just see the range that you had. And just a few of my favorite songs by you, of course, is uh, Wonderful, Wonderful, Small World. I uh, really loved uh, Hello, Young Lovers, Chances Are. I could go on and on and on. I'm not going to do that. But in, in terms of, uh, again, my father really just jumping into your music early, one of the things that I've said over the years is that I've looked at your voice, and the word I use is velvet. Now, has other people said that, or is it just me, or did I just pick that up somewhere else? But I clearly say when I think of Johnny Math is the best voice I've ever heard, And also, as I say, the word I use is velvet.
5: (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, well, uh, I yell and scream sometimes, (laughs) which is not very velvety. But I was very lucky at a very early age, but I also sang because my dad sang. Mm -hmm. And I was about the only one that really kind of got involved. And uh, he suggested that I take voice lessons, and I got very lucky except that I lived in San Francisco. I was part of the high jump team on my track and field team. I even uh, broke the great Bill Russell, a great basketball player. I broke his record in college as a high jumper. And so I was accustomed to kind of circumstance, and the teacher that eventually became my teacher was in Oakland. And that's a long way to travel over the the Bay Bridge uh, from San Francisco to Oakland after school. And I got there very late after she finished with her paying students because I had no money, but I would listen to her, give her lessons to the paying students. And that's how I learned how to thing really listening to her correct them. And then occasionally uh, I would have a little chance to, uh, to be with her on, on our own. And, uh, and that's how it all started for me at, I guess I was about early 20s, maybe a little younger.
1: Yeah, and you definitely had that proverbial fork in the road where I read that about you, how you were a wonderful athlete. You had a chance to go into the Olympic trials, and then you had then, at the same time, an opportunity to get more involved in music. So you had this path, a choice. Am I going down an athletic path or am I going down a music path? You chose music, and it's been, what, almost 70 years now of performing. <laughs> I mean, that is just so amazing. As you look back on the breadth of your career, maybe you can give us some kind of ideas of of what it's like to perform live that many times and stay really motivated for it and excited to do that for the fans.
5: I think the thing most uh, people who take voice lessons get from their teachers is that you're going to want to sing all your life. So let's do it properly. It won't harm you in any way, but what the lessons will do is to keep you from uh, ruining the voice that God gave you. And uh, that was the essence of what I did from the time I was about 13 years old, uh, you know, until the rest of my life. Is I spent times working with voice teachers all over the world and uh, making sure that I maintained the voice that I had. And that was the... Uh, that was the crux of the whole uh, life as a, as a singer, because I've, I've lived in Europe for about five years, um, uh, lived in South America. And uh, it was a revelation to me to be able to not only travel that much, but to sing in, uh, in languages of the places that I uh, lived in.
0: You know, um, Mr. Mathis, I was uh, citing some of my favorite songs of yours. What are your favorite songs?
5: all of them <laughs> Yeah, I uh I don't have singing is about singing anything, everything all the time. So you don't really have uh, special things that you you only like. You like everything. Uh and you try everything. Um uh, I was very lucky in that regard, uh, meeting some uh, wonderful opera singers when I was very young because I grew up in San Francisco, and they had a lot of opera singers that came through. And uh, I got to know them and learn from them about how to uh, maintain my voice over the years. And so far, so good. Yeah.
0: You know, one thing I wanted to ask, too, about uh, enjoying your music so much is the background orchestras that you were able to... Uh, pulled together, I guess, lack of a better term. You know, it was, it was kind of in between the big band era and where we're at now, but I just thought the arrangements, almost every song that you had was just magnificent and flowed so well with your voice. Um, what about that? Did you have a lot to do with that, like the orchestra that backed you up, or was that just something that you just worked together?
5: What happened was I was signed to Columbia Records Uh, by the head of jazz music, his name was George Avakian, a wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, he heard me sing at the local jazz club in San Francisco, and we did an album of jazz songs with all the greatest jazz musicians. People like Miles Davis, Tio Massero, John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet, all were on my albums. You know, jazz music is wonderful in so many ways, except that it doesn't sell very many records. Most people listen to it and, oh, that's interesting, but it doesn't influence them the way, uh, you know, the popular music does.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think, uh, I felt kind of the same way about jazz. So why do you think, uh, yeah, people say they like it, like a, there was a jazz stations all across the country, and then they did some polling or, or um, tap scans, and then they found out people don't listen to jazz that much, and a lot of jazz stations went away. But when people are talk about it, they always talk about it it's their favorite music.
5: I think jazz music has a tendency to be a little more intricate than the popular music. It's a little bit more diverse uh goes all over the place uh not necessarily uh, too um melodic sometimes but interesting mm-hmm. um Most people don't like to listen to music that they're going to have to concentrate. They just like the music to to take them over and overwhelm them, and uh, that's what they go for. But, you know, when you're a singer or a dancer or whatever you do, you have your own little likes and dislikes, and mostly you embrace almost everything. To me, music is music. I don't care whether it's jazz or rhythm and blues or rock and roll or classical. It's all interesting to me, uh, but to the general public, uh, they like just maybe this much of it or that much of it. Sure. And uh, it's a, it's kind of a nice way to go up. My dad was my best pal. He and my mom had seven kids, and uh, my dad sang, and that's what I wanted to do, and that was the emphasis And then, of course, uh, over the years, as I started to uh, sing and travel, um, I enjoyed the aspect of singing. Uh, For instance, I lived in South America for a long time, and I sing in, uh, you know, Spanish, Portuguese. Uh, I lived in uh, France for a while. I lived in Germany. And to sing in the different languages is a lot of fun. It's not always, uh, you know, what the general public would like to hear. But as a as a person who you know performs, uh, you like a little uh, a little
1: variety, I would imagine.
5: Yeah, variety,
6: yeah.
1: Mr. Mathis, um, I want to welcome anyone who's just tuning in to Voices of Experience, and the fact that we're speaking to uh, Johnny Mathis. Uh, it's part of his The Voice of Romance tour. November 15th, you're coming up here to the Northwest to be at the Muckleshoot Casino, a great facility out there in Auburn, Washington. I'd like people to go to also to your website, johnnymathis.com. It's a wonderful website where you can watch videos, listen to music. You can get your entire tour dates. So, again, johnnymathis.com. Uh, coming back to the interview, though, uh, it's an interesting time in music now. There's so many ways that people can access music from their phones, computers, listen still to radio. There's HD radio. So with all these different ways to get music and all these different styles of music, do you have any advice for those aspiring artists who are trying to break in and have their own voice be heard?
5: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh just do it whatever you want whatever you feel like as far as music is concerned uh, embrace it and enjoy it if you get lucky enough to uh, have people who uh, want to hear you or perform if you're a, if you're a, a musician or, a, or just a singer the more the merrier and I think most people who really are, are gifted in that regard, uh, who sing or play an instrument, embrace it, and whether you have an audience or not, sometimes it's not a big deal. I I sang because my dad sang, mm-hmm. and uh, somebody heard me and said, uh, I like your singing. He said, I'll be back next year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, uh, Mr. Mathis, one quick question uh, also and I'm stealing this from an old Johnny Carson show when Frank Sinatra was on it, and uh, Johnny Carson asked Frank Sinatra, when you're in a romantic mood, who do you listen to? I mean, we listen to Frank Sinatra, of course, but you don't listen to yourself, do you? And that was the (laughs) epitome for the question. How about you? What music do you listen to and do you like when you're not listening to yourself?
5: Everything. I I love classical music. I love opera. Um, I studied... uh, opera with a wonderful teacher. I love jazz and rhythm and blues. My father played uh, Bing Crosby. And so I run the gamut. And over the years, it's took me in, in good stead. And I've recorded, oh my goodness, uh, in all the languages. Uh, I lived in France and Germany for a long time. And to travel, be able to travel at an early age as I did, and to sing in languages was a blessing for me.
1: Can we end on just sort of a light note? What, As you look back at all the performances you've done, has there been something really funny that has stood out, something funny that's happened live on stage?
5: <laughs> you name it.
1: <laughs> you name it, it's happened. <laughs> I love it. Well, I want people to learn all about you. If they haven't experienced your music, uh, I would be hard-pressed to find someone like that, but I would love for them to go to your website, johnnymathis.com. What a great interview, Paul. I just thought that was, uh, he seems so genuine.
0: Yes, no question about it, because actually he is authentic, and it's mm-hmm. hard to hide that, And but he's the real deal, and he's always been. And I know that we're speaking to a lot of fans out there, which is a lot of fun, and As you mentioned that we had this opportunity or you found this opportunity to interview him, just thrilled. And I'm so happy to have that. And again, we will be there on November 15th. (laughs) I have seen him once before. Okay. And I saw him maybe about 10 years ago. Um, And it was great. Well, and if people are saying, what are you talking
1: about? When is he going to be here? If you just tuned in, it's November 15th at the Muckleshoot Casino in Auburn. It's the Johnny Mathis, the Voice of Romance tour. Paul, thank you so much for your help on this interview. uh, Yeah,
0: and he's a true voice of experience. I was just thinking about that. I can't help but get that in there. I don't know why.
1: (laughs) Voices of Experience. Stay tuned. More to come.
4: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
0: Welcome back to uh, Voices of Experience. Paul Casey along with Eric Ryder. And also we have Eric Crema in the studio. And um, Eric Ryder, please chime in if you have any opinions on what we're going to talk about now or other things. Sure. And um, talking about our segment Voices in History. And uh, let's start out right now. This is very interesting. On October 5th, today, in 2001, the Seattle Mariners became the winningest team in American League history with a 6-2 to win over the Texas Rangers. Those wins of 116 games broke the tie with the 1998 New York, New York Yankees. Remember and that, that season? And now we're in the playoffs, and uh, that's pretty cool. Another baseball note, Aaron Judge, who uh, hit his 62nd home run last night, and now he holds the Major League Baseball record for home runs, and um, it's mixed for me because I was a big fan of Roger Maris, and uh, Roger held the record till last night. I don't count Mark McGuire or Sosa or um, uh, Bonds. He never really broke the single record, I believe, because the steroid, and I think is controversy. Right. And as that goes on, their record is more and more diminished. So again, Aaron Judge, he's a class act, good man, good ball player. Congratulations to him for 62 home runs. On October 5th, 1947, President Harry S. Truman makes the first ever televised presidential address from the White House. He asked Americans to cut back on their use of grain to help starving Europeans. Mm. Kind of interesting that uh, we're kind of asked to sacrifice, too. And a lot of Europeans are sacrificing because of the war in Ukraine right now. Right. Goes around, comes around, I guess. On October 6th, 1866, brothers John Simeon Reno staged the first train robbery in American history, making off with $13,000 from a railroad train in Jackson County, Indiana. First train robbery. Now, trains had been robbed before, but they were all in stationary train yards. People mm. would break in and do it that way. But this is the first one where, you know, you've seen in the Westerns, yeah. where they come running along in a desolated area and uh, jump on the train and, and take rob that the money. train, like Butch Cassidy.
1: Well, actually, that must have taken a lot of planning to know that it was 13th. That's a lot of money. In today's, I think it's like uh, we figured it out, a quarter million dollars. And you hear about these hapless burglars that steal, you know, $20, $50, and that's all they get out of a register. $13,000, that's a lot of money.
0: Yeah, very good point. You did that quickly in your head, didn't you?
1: No, at the break.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, let's move on to October seventh, 1970, or back to October seventh, 1970. A New York State Supreme Court judge reversed a deportation order of John Lennon for, and allowed him to remain in his adoptive home city of New York. John Lennon sang a song, Give Peace a Chance. Wow, that was controversy, controversial, and it was widely circulated. But he also was associated with, uh, publicly with some radical figures like Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Bobby Seale at the time. The Nixon White House didn't want any of this, and so they wanted him deported. But the court stepped in and said, John, you can stay in New York. Well, we all know what happened years mm-hmm. later there. Maybe it would have been better if he had gone back to England. I just had that thought. Interesting but, uh, point. Anyhow, uh, what else do we have? On October 8th, 1871, a flame spark in the Chicago barn of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. We have all remember this one. But ignited a two-day blaze that killed between 200 and 300 people. Fire destroyed 17,450 buildings. And it left 100,000 homeless and causes an estimated $2,871,000 in damages, which roughly would be $4 billion today. Now, legend has it that a cow kicked over a lantern, but also there were other uh, reasons why people later said that this fire started. One was a comet that came down to Earth and started the fire. <laughs> and there were a few others, but... Um, I just have to say that uh, maybe that was an advanced conspiracy theorist put forth by Steve Banyan's great-grandfather. <laughs> Could be there. Could you know, be a you connection. just don't know about those things. I wasn't there, so I don't know that, <laughs> but, you know, you really never know. So, well, I, are, you I always
1: it. heard about the cow and kicking over the, the lantern. Right, and um, there's a song, but there, could have, there? A too, it could have been a comet too. it could
0: have been. a We don't know. Don't. We just don't know, dude. Do that's
1: we? that's why he jumped over the moon. By the way, oh, she the cow? You know, <laughs> the cow.
0: <laughs> the <laughs> comet. That comet, yeah. Get uh, the get heck the out way. of them! Woo! <laughs> so you're saying the cow started the comet when he was jumping over the moon? This is we're gonna have to it's even
1: getting worse. A lot it's getting worse. <laughs> yeah, we're and somewhere it all comes back to the government. Yes, of course. <laughs> I couldn't believe, you said how many structures, 17,000 yes, or something?
0: 17,450 wow. structures, and it was only like in four square miles or something. Did I read that right, or am hmm. I read that somewhere else? But yeah, and uh, pretty amazing.
1: Well, probably one of the worst scenarios when you have, you know, fire departments are in their infancy. Right. You know, you don't have modern pumps and things like that, and then let's get all packed together in a nice concentrated area and be using things like flaming lanterns and things for light. Sort of a recipe for disaster,
0: I guess. This has nothing to do with this subject per se, but there's something I didn't know until fairly recently, and that is, and I say in the last 10 years, that fire departments then would come by and collect money door to door, and then you'd get a a decal or something on your door Hmm. that you gave to the fire department. And if you didn't and your structure was burning down, they wouldn't come. They wouldn't. No, come. <laughs> that I believe is you know it sounds so crazy, but it was kind of done that way. Wow. So let's get that sticker quick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now coming up in just a uh, few moments is an interview I had with a gentleman and uh, it and his partner, but it talks about essentially that ninety is the new forty. I kind of got this interviewed pitch to me and I'm going, Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I don't want to kind of go there, but I did. And they do have some credible information. So I will leave it to the readers and the listeners to really, um, think about it because they do have a book out and you want to buy the book. You can certainly do that and you'll find out how you can do that. But anyhow, it's pretty interesting what Mm -hmm. he came up with. So I, again, I'm going to leave it to you guys to think, now, Paul, are you going off the deep end here, or <laughs> is there something here to what they had to say? 50 is the new 30. Not according to Dr. Michael Rosen, author of The Great Age Reboot, Cracking the Longevity Code for a Younger Tomorrow, with Albert Radner contributing along with Dr. Peter Linneman According to these gentlemen, 90 will be the new 40. So what is all this about? New scientific breakthroughs that will allow us to live longer. What
7: are those? Well, there are 14 different areas that have changed the rate of aging in animals, each in two animal species or more. And these are 14 areas of research into the basic mechanisms of aging. Since 1890, we have increased life expectancy from about 41 to about 78 now, in a relatively straight line fashion of about two and a half years every 10 years. But now we are increasing it at a rate of about, meaning with this expectation, we expect that with an 80% probability or more, life expectancy will increase to about, by about 30 years. And there's some some of these are inexpensive and easy to do, such as what we call plasma exchange, where you just donate a unit of plasma every week for five weeks and then once a month for four months. And then watch how as your body regenerates new cells and new proteins, you get younger. So in animal models, doing that um, once a week for four episodes, decrease skin aging Reverse skin aging, rebooted the skin, rebooted the, the muscles, rebooted your heart and cardiovascular system, and biopsies of the kidney, pancreas, and liver showed those were of a much younger animal. Well, that's moved to human trials now, and in the AMBAR studies, AMBAR, they've taken people with early dementia, done this, and they, over 15 months, the studies are still ongoing, but at the 15 months mark... All of them had shown reversal of dementia and of early Alzheimer's disease, and not just slowing the rate of decline, actually improvement. On the other hand, people who've had heart attack, you can give them stem cells. You'd need to do 20 to 40 million stem cells per person. And the way you do that is you do a bone marrow biopsy in them and then grow them in culture for four months to get that many stem cells to give it back very expensive. But in Japan, they've taken away the immunogenicity, the immune capabilities of stem cells to react to them so they can produce trillions at a time and give you them much less expensive. And that experiment, that trial in humans is now ongoing. And Albert Ratner did come in. And so he's free to, to talk to you as well.
0: Well, great. Welcome, Albert. This is uh, pretty stunning information. Why we haven't heard more of this, this is pretty amazing that these trials are now going on in humans, what you were just talking about. And uh, again, I haven't really heard too much about this, but this sounds like, I guess, you know, sometimes you get things like this and you go, this is kind of way far out there, but this doesn't sound far out there at all. It's here.
6: Well, it's funny because when Michael and I, Started this. We were playing ping. We played ping pong together. And he had a number of radio shows he was on, and he kept talking about all the things that were happening. And one day I said to him, "Mike, wh- what is all this stuff going on? What does it mean?" And he says, "I think that what's going to happen is there's going to be an exponential growth in research." And this is going to be a phenomenal thing. My business has been the real estate business, working a lot of urban markets in the country. And I mentioned to Mike that in the markets I was working in, urban markets, people at lower income, I had felt there was a change taking place where people believe they control their destiny. So we decided with write a book. We didn't know what the book was going to be about. We had an idea that would look at these two things. got about halfway through the book, and when we started to look at all this research, it became evident to us that what was going to happen was it was gonna have an enormous effects on everything that happened. So we then invited Peter Linerman of Wharton to join us. And when he joined us, They took a look at the research. They took a look at the death rate and what people were dying of. And they said, we think over the next 10 years, for certain over the next 30 years, that's going to be 2.2 deaths. And that did two things. The first thing it did, it looked at the population and basically said the following. If you're 25 years old today, you will live another 100 years to 125 and if you are 75 today you will live 25 more years to 100 and that's totally different than anybody figured the result of that becomes one that we estimate over the next three decades we're going to have 117.5 more million people or a population of 451 million people So this is all amazing stuff, and it's all good stuff. And the best part of it is we don't have to depend on anybody else to do it for us. This research is going on all over the world. Every day we get more stuff coming to us on what's happening, and it's all in our hands. Where we thought that the genes controlled our life, we controlled the
0: genes. There was a quote that I read, I think it was from your book, longevity is not the problem. Longevity is the cure. What do you mean by
7: that? Well, many people say, holy mackerel, can we support all these old people? We've got a real problem. We won't have enough young people working to support all these old people. But in fact, if you're going to be healthy when you're and live to 100 and when you're 95 and live to 115 you're not going to want to stop working at 65 and do nothing for 50 years so the point is that if you consider the work time is from now 25 to 65 or 40 years if you work to 85 you still will have 25 years of retirement or 30 years of retirement and so but that increases the human capital it increases the time that you'll be working from 40 years to 60 years, so it increases human capital by 50 percent. You'll still be paying taxes, paying into Medicare and Social Security. So you actually cure the pension problem. You cure the fact that Medicare and Social Security are predicted to run out of money in the next decade. So you're going to – this is really – longevity helps us cure society's ills, helps us increase – GDP, not it isn't a problem for us. And it also sounds like we'll be living much healthier lives, too. Well, that's right. If you function and, and are the equivalent of 40 at 90, that's much healthier than most people are now. Although my uh, writing partner, who's 94, Albert Ratner, is pretty gosh darn uh, functional, um, as you can tell, at age uh, 94.
0: My thanks to Dr. Michael Rosen and Albert Ratner. Now, again, the book is called The Great Age Reboot, Cracking the Longevity Code for a Younger Tomorrow. Now, if you want to find the book, all you need to do is Google Great Age Reboot. That's Great Age Reboot.
4: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206 714
0: 714-8154. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. Uh, talked about aging there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought they actually talked about some very interesting uh, concepts. Um, I don't know. Uh, but it's certainly worth considering in, among all the other things we hear about aging. Yes. So, um Anyhow, I hope uh, you enjoyed that as much as I did. And uh, you'll kind of look into maybe getting a copy of the book if you want to. Mm -hmm. You can certainly do that. Uh, Now, the next guest we have coming up in just a few moments is uh, Shelley Fabre. Now, I think we all remember that name. Mm -hmm. Not all of us, but for those who don't, she first starred on the Donna Reed show uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And, back, and I think in the '80s it was Coach, mm-hmm. and then of course going back to her music career, which Eric Ryder just reminded me of. Number one song in 1962? That's correct. Yeah, Johnny Angel.
1: That's right, Johnny Angel. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna have that song in my head. All I know the way
0: that's home. one of those. Jim Day used to say this to me. It was an earwig or something. Earworm. <laughs> earworm. Or something? <laughs> earworm. Is that what it earworm?
1: Is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Definitely. that's what it is. It's a good and song. I have that.
0: It is. It yeah. really is. And I, I did listen to it, but. I got to say, she was just an extremely delightful person. The reason that I met her is that I was director of the Alzheimer's Association at the time, the local chapter, and um, let her tell the story, and then uh, we'll come back. Sounds great.
4: It's probably twofold. I, I first and foremost, I think it's the people that I that I work with and that I've had the, the joy and the pleasure of working with over the years. Uh, you have such um, powerful relationships because you're, you you work so closely together for sometimes very short periods of times and other times very long periods of times but you, you seem to cut through a lot of the, um, the easy stuff of, of relationships and go right to the, sort of the heart of the matter and I, I find that that's one of the great, great pleasures. The second part of it would be just the working process itself. I really enjoy the rehearsal process and figuring things out and how to do things hopefully better and uh, so but that's also included with the people you know the 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 working process with the people that you either meet for the first time and get to know or sometimes you're working with people that you've worked with before it's always it's just great
0: you're very much involved with the alzheimer's association for some years now and have done a wonderful job in promoting really what the Alzheimer's Association is all about well thank you why did you get involved
4: well I became involved when uh, my mother Elsa Rose Fabere, um, it's her full name um, had Alzheimer's it, it we didn't know for four years what was wrong with her my sister and I took her to just hundreds of different doctors it feels like not actually hundreds but as many as we could get her to and nobody could ever come up with a diagnosis and finally after four years um, they did come up with a diagnosis, and they said she has something called multi infarct dementia and probable Alzheimer's. And then they basically said, "Well, you know, gosh, goodbye, good luck," because they really had nothing to tell me to do. I called information in Los Angeles, and I got the number. they said, "Well, I have something called Alzheimer's Association." So I called them, and they said, um, "Alzheimer's Association, how can we help?" And there was this total silence on my end of the line, and I said, "You know." I have no idea. I don't even. I don't even have a question to ask you. I did. I literally knew nothing. And they sort of took over they were so helpful on every emotional as well as um, practical basis and i after a period of time said to them if there was ever anything i could help do to help on a volunteer basis that i i was so grateful for what they had done for me and a short time after that i got a phone call from our executive director in los angeles and he said from our chapter and he said i understand you volunteered your time and i said yes that's right i did and he said well we'd like you to go to washington and testify before congress and i did and i testified and that began my journey with the Alzheimer's Association. I was able to use the visibility that I have from basically from all of my years of working, but certainly at the present time with, uh, with Coach, and use it to um, so that people like you would kindly call and ask for information about what I'm doing in my life and about the Alzheimer's Association.
0: As you know, that was Shelley Faberay, and she's a very good person. And um, again, she uh, went through Alzheimer's. And like me, when it was really getting known in the 70s and 80s, 1980s, it's fascinating to think that it was, or is, the fourth leading cause of death in the country. And there was really nothing about this until about that time. She noticed her mother, as she said, having some difficulty, had not a clue as to what was going on, called the Alzheimer's Association, and got a lot of help from them, which is good to hear. And then she, again, was very supportive of our organization. She came up here maybe two or three times to help us out. And uh, as I say just a very delightful person, Shelly faber So those are kind of fun little tidbits that we will play occasionally on this show because uh, I have a lot of these back from the 1990s.
1: Yeah, and if you don't remember who she is, just Google her name, look up the picture, and- and uh, the, at least the one I'm looking at was from 1991, and she has one of these faces that you can tell she smiles a lot, like a yeah. natural smile, you know? Right. And and I just, I get the feeling from your interview with her and just what little I've read and seen photos and things, that she is one of those authentic, really nice people.
0: I would have to agree. Yeah. Uh, one of the, you know, I, I haven't met a lot of famous people in my life, but most of them have been that way. Good. See in particular. But when I have, they're all, I think when they really make it to the top, they're, uh, they're relaxed mm-hmm. and they're not so maybe trying to look at the next thing. They're not looking at somebody over your shoulder. They pay attention to you. There's only just a few people and I'm not even going to mention them. What's the point Right. that, that I've in my experience that have been not so nice or not so, uh, <laughs> good to talk with. They had that air about them. How about you? What your experience?
1: Yeah, no, I'd agree with you and certainly don't want to mention the ones that were kind of the horrible ones, but, um, uh, like you, uh, most of my interactions have been in interviews and things like that. So I don't know, maybe they're on their best behavior, who knows? Um, but you know, it's prevalent regardless of who you are in life. You know, that, what is the common craze now? um, as the woman that kind of went went a little bonkers over some customer service way back when, and it became an internet sensation, and they and now her name is synonymous with this is what it's like when you. I'm I'm trying to think of her name as I'm speaking. Um, it's just a common name that that you say that's what you're doing. You're being a Karen. Karen, thank you. <laughs> you're yes, being a Karen. Karen. I haven't heard of this. Yeah. Okay. And it's just a it's just a sort of a kitschy way of saying it's a meme. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, okay. It's a, it's a meme. All right. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, so anyone, I
0: don't care if you're famous or not, you could be a jerk. <laughs> you could be infamous. Right. Oh, absolutely. Be an infamous jerk, right? I mean, you don't really, yes. And you could be a great person most way. of
1: the time, but be a jerk once in a while. You know not That's true. Right.
0: <laughs> it takes all kinds. It takes all kinds. Right. So, um, yeah, so that was, what a wonderful show. I said at the beginning, you know, I thought the show last week was the best we've ever did in the history of Radio. I think this one with Johnny Math has just been a ball, and we really hope to have many more guests like this uh, coming on. But uh, we're out of time for today. We're kind of rolling uh, right now. And uh, mm-hmm. thank you both to both Eric's today. It's been really a lot of fun. And any comments that you may have about the show, any suggestions you may have for future shows, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. 425-653-1166. And uh, just a reminder, Voices of Experience airs at 3 p.m. today, Wednesdays. And uh, it's simulcast with Hubbard sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And then it is rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie only at 11 a.m. Coming up next week, Neil Peterson, a uh, fascinating individual. He is uh, the executive director of the Edge Foundation now, which... Uh, helps people with attention deficit disorders, mainly children. He's got an incredible history in this area and in California, in the area of transportation and other things. I've known him for many years, but he does a lot of adventures. And one of them was just in the last months, he, well, month of August, he went to the Midwest cause he'd never really spent time mm-hmm. there. He's typically a individual who's curious. He's flying over the states. He's lived on the West Coast and the East Coast. And again, we have that term, the flyover states. Right. I'm going to go to Nebraska, Iowa, and spend time there. Minnesota, Michigan. He did it. Three weeks he spent there. What were the myths he had going into that? And what's the reality? I'm always interested in that. Mm. So I'm going to have him on next week talking about that. Uh, again, my name is Paul Casey. Thanks to Eric Crema here, Eric Ryder. So much uh, great work on the boards. Uh, I'll end with this quote of the week. An appeaser is one who feeds the crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. Winston Churchill.